A uh, you know, new CDC report was out on vaccine failures. The CDC, through Departments of Community Health, only reports to America a, uh, a representative sample. It's not the entire number of cases, but the total they're reporting on their website is 24,000 individuals that have either died or been hospitalized after being fully vaccinated strictly by CDC criteria. That is a large number, everyone would agree. And sadly, over 25% of that composite is deaths. I am so excited for our guest. I said, let's just bring him on right away, and then I'll try and get back to your phone calls after this. But we have some information we need to hear from the leader in the medical response to COVID-19 disaster, somebody that so many of us are so grateful for to bring us common sense, Dr. Peter McCullough. It is an honor to talk to you for the first time. I haven't gotten to talk to you just yet. So um, gosh, and I just hold your seat, Dr. McCullough, because I got some questions for you. (laughs) I've been waiting for this. (laughs) So I heard in you talking to Mike Adams, actually, just earlier today, and you were talking about a new CDC report. Can you tell me what you were referring to? Uh, you know, new CDC report was out on vaccine failures. The CDC, through Departments of Community Health, only reports to America a, uh, a representative sample. It's not the entire number of cases, but the total they're reporting on their website is 24,000 individuals that have either died or been hospitalized after being fully vaccinated strictly by CDC criteria. That is a large number, everyone would agree. And sadly, over 25% of that composite is deaths. And the majority, uh, I mean, over 75% are in our seniors over age 65. So what America needs to know is that vaccines as they exist today cannot be claimed to protect against hospitalization and death. We're starting to see wholesale failure of the vaccines. And sorry if I threw you off there a bit. What I meant to say was that I heard uh, Mike Adams talking to a guest who said he had heard from you about this report. So I probably threw you off a minute. He's like, wait, was I Mike Adams today? No, it was actually his guest that had heard from you. I love how everyone's just connected and sharing the information, but um, man, it just gets worse every day. And then just the other day I had mentioned that you had this lawsuit, but this lawsuit was back in September that it was filed um, against the FDA for the Pfizer vaccine data. Do you have any updates in regard to that lawsuit? That's really important. You know, that was filed by lead attorney Adam Seary in New York, and Adam's done a wonderful job. He's had demand letters into the CDC uh, demanding recognition of natural immunity, and uh, he has taken the lead on this one and organized a class of what's considered public health and medical professionals, myself included. I'm part of this broad class that's demanding through freedom of information access to all the Pfizer data. Since the Pfizer vaccine has been used in so many Americans, Americans deserve to know all the information regarding the Pfizer vaccine. And we have very specific questions, particularly contemporary questions that need to be answered. So for instance, the Pfizer clinical vaccine program was conducted during an era where the wild type spike protein, the alpha and the beta and some gamma variants we're probably in the patient population, but I anticipate very close to zero Delta, very close to zero Delta. Now, fast forward, the vaccines are failing in the summertime and fall, and we have 99% Delta 
based on the most recent CDC report on the variants. So we need to understand why the Pfizer vaccines are failing, even in the clinical trials, what was the prototype of a patient where the vaccine failed, and how can we better protect Americans? And do you have confidence that that you'll get the answers as you move forward with this? Because it gets discouraging for those of us watching, seeing that you're trying to do things, but then we don't see anything happen. You know, there is a lot of legal activity right now. Even today, a lawsuit was named uh, in a press release by lead attorney Matt Staver of Liberty Council uh, against five branches of the military. Again, a broad class of uh, plaintiffs uh, against vaccine mandates with very good rationale. Uh, similarly, there's been a, a lawsuit filed by lead attorney Tom Rents against the Department of Health and Human Services for vaccine mortalities and a request for uh, a stay or a cessation of the vaccine program. Now there's going to be amendments based on the response from the DHHS, but there is a ton of legal activity going on as a proxy for a lot of wrongdoing going on by our public health agencies. We just can't keep up with it. Dr. McCullough, stick around. I am so excited to be talking to Dr. Peter McCullough, such a brave warrior for truth and justice trying to hold the bad actors accountable. So let's get back into it, shall we? Uh, so Dr. McCullough, I, I did get some information from my now dear friend. You might be familiar with her, Dr. Ginger Bregan. And um, she said that something's going on on October 30th. Do you want to tell me about this rally or what's going on in Spartansburg, South Carolina? Do you know? You know, there's going to be a whole series of uh, rallies. Uh, in fact, there's one on Monday morning coming up at Love Field in Dallas with Governor Abbott uh, pushing for some form of vaccine freedoms here in Texas. They've gone through, a go governor issued an executive order, it went into special session, and now there's a lot of work being done to either uh, ban private companies from having vaccine mandates. We can't have state uh, agencies in Texas uh, have vaccine mandates. Um, but if not that, at least have respect for and a fair uh, wavering process for medical and religious exemptions. There's also rallies uh, uh, elsewhere around the country. I think towards the end of this month, I'm going to be in Mississippi, uh, and uh, we're going to see a lot more uh, uh, activity as moving forward. You know, there's three important circles to think about. The first is the circle of medical freedom. And, and if we allow that circle to be broken instantly, it's related to social freedoms like, uh, you know, going to school, work, employment, and that's immediately linked to economic freedoms. So we must preserve uh, the circle of medical freedom. Everybody has a choice with respect to what medicines that goes in their body, what injections go in their body, and everyone's responsible for their own health. And in a paper by Block and colleagues in the British Medical Journal, a wonderful summary, you know, we're at 120 million Americans that are COVID recovered now. They have natural immunity. They fundamentally have no risk of developing COVID-19. That was through May. And it's 44% of those age 18 to 59. After the big Delta curve, those numbers are much bigger. We can breathe a sigh of relief. We're on the backside of the Delta curve and it's still 99% Delta. What we really have left is we have some vaccinated individuals who will get sick with COVID-19 and I want to encourage each and every one of them to seek early treatment, especially those over 50 with medical problems. And under no circumstances should we allow any vaccine discrimination, whether someone who's elected to take a vaccine or someone who's to defer on the vaccine because it's their medical choice. I think you're absolutely right there, and it's a good reminder. 
Do you know anything about this hospital in Spartanburg, South Carolina, where nine out of 10 COVID patients are dying for lack of basic care? A doctor having to travel 90 minutes each way daily to give meds for one of the patients? Are you aware of any well, of that? Going? No, I don't know about it, but I can say broadly, there's been a great concern among Americans that inpatient care isn't where it should be. Americans see standards all over the world, just south of us here in Texas, in Mexico City. They're doing a wonderful job. They cleared out their hospitals by using ivermectin. They did the same thing in large states in India. They use a combination of ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, other drugs. Here in the United States, we have monoclonal antibodies, which we can use as an outpatient, but they're not readily used as soon as a patient becomes an inpatient. And in fact, that should be done. Uh, we should extend all the drugs we're using as an outpatient very effectively, including ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, doxycycline, colchicine, aspirin, and full-dose anticoagulants, we should extend those to inpatient care. When patients get admitted to the hospital, there shouldn't be a step down in care. We should have a step up in care. Look at these data that you can see there. Patients being fully vaccinated in the hospital, they can really get in trouble. And in fact, a large number of them can die. So I'm, I'm fearful that patients who are getting vaccinated maybe uh, uh, are delaying in seeking care or they think they're protected against COVID-19. And then the CDC data, as you just showed, is telling us that the fully vaccinated can get in trouble and they need our care just as much as the unvaccinated. Again, a good reminder because I think that they try and divide us so much in the media that sometimes that we lose sight of what we're really asking for is just choice, personal choice and respecting others' choices. Good reminder there. I don't know if you had a chance to see any of the interview between Joe Rogan and Dr. Sanjay Gupta at all. It's been very much in the news. Um, again, I'm sure you're so busy, maybe you, you didn't have a chance to see it, but I was interested because I did listen to some of it. And when Joe Rogan brought up the whole concept of why are they pushing this on kids so much? We know that there's a risk of myocarditis. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, I believe, I was trying to write some of this stuff down because it intrigued me. I believe he said that children are more likely to get myocarditis from COVID-19 than they are to get it from a vaccination. Do you have any idea where he would have gotten that data from or is there even any truth to it? You know, there is a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine that tried to compare, I think, two different processes. One is myocarditis with the vaccines, which is uh, not completely reported, and they basically relied upon data from uh, the CDC. And then the elevation in troponin that occurs in sick hospitalized patients with COVID-19, largely adults, and the conclusions were that um, uh, that were false, in my view. They basically called both conditions myocarditis. Well, the patients with COVID-19 in the hospital, they don't meet a strict definition of myocarditis. They have ICU sickness. We see troponin elevations for bacterial sepsis and other problems. The myocarditis we're concerned about is due to the vaccine, and it's manifest by chest pain, signs and symptoms of heart failure, uh, market elevations in troponin. We're talking 10 to 100-fold increases in blood troponin levels, indicating heart injury, dramatic EKG changes, SD segment elevation globally, and then reductions in heart pumping function we see by echocardiography. When the CDC looked at this in uh, June, they put out statements that they thought it was rare. 
but uh, importantly, they only had 200 cases. It's now explosive. The CDC has over 6,000 cases they've certified. And in a paper by Tracy Hogan colleagues from University of California at Davis, what she found is that a young person is far more likely to be hospitalized with vaccine myocarditis then take their chances with COVID and being hospitalized with COVID. The trade-off is not even close. If a child gets, gets COVID, it's like a one or two day cold. Even those with severe symptoms can be readily treated with easy to use drugs like azithromycin and uh, prednisone, budesonide, aspirin. It's easy to get children through COVID-19. Let me tell you what, I'm a cardiologist. It is not easy to get these kids through myocarditis. And so there's great concern that we're going to lose heart uh, muscle pumping function. We have to use drugs to prevent the development of heart failure, do serial testing, uh, electrocardiograms, echocardiograms. The kid has to have to have office visits. You know, th these young children don't have any business seeing a cardiologist like me. They should go be having fun with school and sports in the fall instead of being in doctor's offices with myocarditis. Now, another disingenuous claim has been that it's mild. Well, we don't know that because the vaccines just started in children. We're not gonna know if it's mild until months later to see if the kids indeed develop heart failure or have So this is really just experimenting on our children. Yeah, yeah. So one can't say it's rare because uh, when it was rare at 200, it exploded to 6,000. So it's clearly not rare. It was the tip of the iceberg, as I said in the media uh, back when they were first discussing this. And not only that, but it's not mild. We can't say it's mild. Every indicator we have suggests uh, that this could be a major problem emerging in the children. And the FDA agree. The FDA has official warnings on Pfizer and Moderna. Don't use these vaccines in young people because they cause myocarditis. Experimentally, we know now that they cause myocarditis. So I've gone on TV. I was on Laura Ingram. I told Laura this spring, I said, under no circumstances should anyone under age 30 take, take a COVID-19 vaccine. Because so why the are they pushing it so hard? hard? Why? What is the goal? What is? Why are they pushing it so hard? You know, they're not well supported, and, and I'm certainly not in the meeting rooms of the federal officials. Uh, they don't have a, uh, a class of doctors uh, that have hundreds of publications that are skilled in cardiology, skilled in the medical specialties. Uh, so I think part of it's a competency issue at the highest levels. They certainly don't have doctors who are treating COVID-19 patients that are handling vaccine injuries. You know, we've had nearly three quarters of a million Americans that have been injured by the vaccines. Uh, the CDC and FDA ought to be, ought to be uh, opening up vaccine injury centers at this point in time, managing wow. the injuries that are cardiac, neurologic, immunologic, and GI. Sadly, over 23 thousand Americans have been permanently disabled by the vaccines. Dr. Peter McCullough, who has led the charge to common sense of how we approach this coronavirus situation. And Dr. McCullough, you have been so informative so far. So I got to ask you, what has it been like being that voice crying in the wilderness? I mean, does it ever feel like that? Or do you feel like you have so much support that you don't ever feel like that? Well, the support systems are strong. You know, America has about 500 doctors now that have enough courage to treat COVID-19 as an outpatient. They're trying to hold down the fort. We've got a million doctors on the sidelines still, half a million nurse practitioners and PAs. So I can tell you, our phones are blowing up. Just at the break here, I took about four uh, texts on various critical patients uh, around the country. We're doing the best we can, but we need more doctors to come off the sidelines. I know it's terrifying to try to face COVID-19. Even if it's over the phone, they're terrified with how sick these patients are. It's clear they need early treatment long before the hospitalization. 
information. Uh, and, and people ought to be activated. Patients can help by knowing where to get monoclonal antibodies. We use monoclonal antibodies. You mentioned Joe Rogan. Joe got our sequence multi-drug therapy the way I drew it up for America starting last year with monoclonal antibodies, nutraceuticals and supplements, followed by ivermectin, additional drugs, steroids. And Joe Rogan got through it in a few days. Uh, and I can tell you, if he would have followed the NIH guidelines, a big guy like Joe Rogan, the virus eats people like them alive. He would have been on the ventilator. So I can tell you right now, early sequence multidrug therapy, as, as fully supported by uh, the Truth for Health Foundation, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, American Frontline Doctors, and the um, uh, Frontline Critical Care Consortium. They have additional protocols. That's the way to go in America. America knows COVID-19 is, tre is treatable, and so does the rest of the world, and no one should be denied treatment if they're at high risk over age 50 who come down with acute COVID. So my question is, is what is it like to hear somebody like Dr. Sanjay Gupta? Is he just out of touch? Why do you think that you, someone like you and someone like him can be so divided on your interpretation of what's going on? I think it's a clinical and academic experience. You know, I have, I'm coming up on 700 publications in the peer-reviewed literature. I have 51 publications. They're in an author, author, author block on 51 publications on COVID-19. I'm the editor of, of a major journal, president of a major medical society. I've treated hundreds of COVID-19 patients, advised on a thousand. I've had the illness myself. I mean, someone like Sanjay Gupta is a wonderful guy. He's a smart guy, but he's just kind of outflanked. In this case, he's not somebody who's going to be in a position of authority. And, you know, I didn't ever use that word before. But when I went on Tucker Carlson back in May, you know, Tucker started to get all worked up as I was basically telling him the story of suppression of early treatment in order to force mass vaccination. Tucker started to get really agitated, looked up at the camera. He said, listen, if you don't know who this doctor is, go look him up. I think he has authority. I said, holy smokes, I, I guess maybe I do have authority. Uh, but I've been uh, delighted to try to help America the best I can. I've testified in the U.S. Senate, multiple state senates. My advice has been relied upon. Uh, I've had a whole series of op-eds in the Hill last year that properly guided America through what was going to happen with the pandemic. This year, I've been honored to be a regular contributor on Fox News. I'm very uh, dedicated to just citing the data, I'm giving the data, and then everyone else can fairly interpret it. That's how we're going to get out of this pandemic crisis is by following the scientific data as it's published. But Dr. McCullough, we have seen other doctors viciously attacked and targeted, and some have the, ha had their licenses threatened to be taken away. How have you been immune to that so far, or have you um, faced some of that? Yeah, it's interesting. I have actually never had a face-to-face -face challenge or just a discussion with anybody about a topic. See, if someone would kind of want to talk about vaccine safety and efficacy early treatment, uh, and it's, it's, it's rarely been even an email exchange. Most doctors who don't treat COVID-19 or those who are just promoting the vaccine uh, and ignoring the vaccine safety issues, I think most of them uh, right now, uh, they're confused. They look uh, fearful. They look frightened. They look remorseful. Uh, and most of them I honestly can't look us uh, in the eye. You know, millionaire Steve Kirsch, who's the director of the COVID Early Treatment Fund, he's basically put out a challenge. He said, listen, I'll put $2 million on the table if anybody will come to the table wow. on the other side and just fairly discuss vaccine safety and efficacy. You know what? No one will come forward. Wow. Well, I mean, that speaks speaks volumes. But I've I've talked to so many just hometown doctors and things like that who have 
shared with me that that they disagree with a lot of what's put out there, but they're like, I can't say anything. I'm not going to show my face. I'll get my license well, taken away. <laughs> well, let me let me give you a piece of good news. I uh, was a featured speaker at a major symposium at the University of Nebraska Cornhusk Huskers in Lincoln, Nebraska this week. It was just announced by the uh, the uh, Nebraska Attorney General today that they will not in any way try to injure or harm or investigate doctors for properly using ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine in the treatment of COVID-19. I think it was great to see that come out by the attorney general. Wow. Yeah, we need to see more of that. <laughs> and you haven't had resistance in, in using any of those medicines? Because the media makes it seem like you're just like not even allowed to use we want. are seeing resistance. The major chains are doing all kinds of administrative ploys uh, to try to block the prescriptions of these medications. And it's not just hydroxychloroquine and uh, ivermectin. It's even use of budesonide, a, palm, a palmacort inhaler. We've heard stories recently about making betadine, uh, you know, the dilute solution that we use in the nose and the mouth that's so valuable in cutting down the viral load and preventing COVID-19, even making uh, betadine more difficult to, uh, to access. So the pharmacies, uh, as they are part of the vaccine stakeholders, you know, they're a major administration arm for the vaccines. They seem to be uh, really working against early treatment. But there's a lot of heroic community pharmacies that are stepping up and filling prescriptions for patients, and patients are indeed getting early ambulatory treatment. And you know that because the hospitalizations are down and the deaths are down, and the only way that can bring that, the only reason why these curves go away is early treatment. How have they had so much control over the hospitals? Because my good friend, her her dad was in the hospital and her dad had a prescription for ivermectin, but she couldn't get it to him because the hospital wouldn't allow it. Hospitals have been uh, taken to court over and over again by concerned families uh, demanding ivermectin, full-dose aspirin, full-dose anticoagulation. Families actually know how patients should be treated. And the hospital administrators and doctors, CCU directors, chief medical officers, they must be embarrassed when they're told by a court how to treat patients properly. So I'm sincerely hopeful that um, our inpatient colleagues will start to get the message that they want to see a much broader, much more intensive treatment of our seniors in the hospital and bring these mortality rates down. They just can't go in the hospital and get remdesivir, low-dose decadron, and get put on the ventilator. That's wholly inadequate. We have so many more therapies that work as an outpatient, and they clearly can be continued as an inpatient. All right, I'm gonna have to let you go, Dr. McCullough, but it was such a great honor to talk to you. So exciting, I hope I get to do it again. Um, final real quick word on, are we gonna, just yes or no, are we gonna see some action on these lawsuits? Yes. All right, that is what I wanna hear. We want to see some action, some justice, some accountability. Thank you so much, Dr. McCullough, and I'm sure we'll be talking to you again soon. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Dennis Prager Show, coming to you from Florida. You might hear thunder in the background. That's because they have something in Florida that we do not have in California, rain. <laughs> and uh, they get a lot of it. One of the reasons, perhaps, uh, people are moving uh, to Florida from uh, California. Talking about moving, here's a headline for you. 
iconic Target store on Mission Street to close amid shoplifting tidal wave. San Francisco Police Department tells Globe Mayor Breed tells Globe, that is the Globe, the California Globe, that Mayor Breed falsely claims it's not about theft and begs company to stay. Last week, after Walgreens announced that five additional outlets in San Francisco would be closing on top of the 17 that already have been shuttered since 2019, the company claimed that changes in both the law and prosecutor attitudes had made it impossible to run a profitable business in the city. But after all, the word profit is a dirty word to the left, so what do they care? Mayor London Breed challenged that narrative. She attributed the closings to demographic shifts. Really? Demographic shifts. And the Chronicle dutifully reported that the five stores slated to close had fewer than two recorded shoplifting incidents a month on average since 2018. Hmm. While acknowledging that few stores bother to report a crime that now routinely goes unpunished. Everyone who has stood in line at a drugstore and watched thieves shove hundreds of dollars of items down their pants knew that Breed would mistaken at best or lying at worst. Now in a Globe-exclusive, San Francisco Police Department has revealed that the iconic target on Mission Street between 3rd and 4th Streets will be shutting its doors before the end of the year. This store loses $25,000 a day to shoplifting, a San Francisco Police Department officer told the Globe in lengthy taped interviews conducted this week. That's $25,000 that walks out the door on average between 9 and 6 every day. There you go. The amazing thing is, and this is, I think amazing is the appropriate term, the amazing thing is that people in San Francisco vote Democrat as they destroy their own city. If the word amazing is not appropriate, then uh, you, you, you provide the adjective. People vote to destroy their place of, of life, where they live. When you vote Democrat, you vote to destroy your city. That is not an exaggeration. That is not hyperbole. You vote to destroy Philadelphia, New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago. You vote to destroy the quality of life in your city. So why do people vote Democrat? It, you, you may have an answer, and I'd be very curious uh, to, to hear your answer, especially if you do vote Democrat or if you know somebody in your family or among friends that votes Democrat in, in a big city, what is their reasoning? What is the thinking? It shows you that reason is rare. The rational in the human species is rare. It is a completely irrational act to vote Democrat in any large city. 
It's completely irrational. It is, it is destructive. So why do people do it? Well, in part, they have been literally, literally brainwashed into believing that Republicans are the bad guys. That's, there's, there's no, well, there are other explanations, but that's certainly one of them. To vote Republican is, is to vote for the bad guy. The fact that the bad guys profit from the Democrats seems to be irrelevant. People voted in, in Los Angeles for this monster named Gascon, this staggering, destructive fool as district attorney. They, they voted, the voters of California voted a number of years ago, they voted to uh, make any theft under $900 a misdemeanor, which is essentially means, which essentially means it's not prosecuted. When I was in high school, I realized I was not a leftist. And I, and I know exactly why. I realized because I hated evil and the left doesn't hate evil. And that was it. They don't hate evil. They, they hate Republicans. They hate Christians. But they don't hate evil. I don't understand what it is in the human condition that does not hate evil. It is my favorite verse in the Bible. Those of you who love God must hate evil. If you don't hate evil, you don't love God. And I find that to be utterly appropriate. These are the riddles of life. These are truly the riddles of life. To vote that if you steal, it's okay. Stealing is okay. I brought to your attention National Public Radio. Remember they had a woman on in defense of shoplifting? I think that was the name of her book. They had the woman on, I believe, for an hour. Didn't ask a challenging question. It's okay. It's it's okay to steal. Well, at least you now understand why I believe that the Ten Commandments is the answer to humanity's problems. If people lived by the Ten Commandments, the world would be a beautiful place. The left mocks the Ten Commandments. If you don't believe me, look at the reactions to my videos at PragerU on the Ten Commandments and see how much leftists mock the Ten Commandments. Mock it. And what a, what a fool I must be to advocate that people actually live by it. It's a puzzle. I have to admit, it is a puzzle. People who steal are doing, are engaged in one of the great acts of evil. And that is not how any leftist views it. Any. 
The moment you acknowledge that stealing is evil, you have left the left. It's great. That's what we want is people to leave the left. See Dave Rubin's video, Why I Left the Left. He was a big, big man on the left. But he actually thinks morally. And the moment you think morally, you leave the left. They have pictures here of these empty shelves in these stores. It's, it's, it, 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 it boggles the mind that this is okay with people who vote Democrat. So that's the story out of San Francisco. A lot more stories to report to you. But I, I am curious if you have a thought on why people in big cities vote Democrat in light of the fact that the Democrats destroy all big cities, tell me tell me what it is. The it's so profoundly irrational that it does need an explanation. It truly does. Let's see, what is the latest here on masking kids? Vaccinated children likely still have to wear masks in school, Surgeon General says. Indoor mask mandates at schools will likely stay in place even after young children receive COVID-19 vaccines. You're going to give your child a COVID-19 vaccine? There's another question for you. You're going to give your child a COVID-19 vaccine? 1-8-Prager-776. The Dennis Prager Show. Hey, everybody. I'm Dennis Prager. Good to be with you, even if the subjects are depressing. I acknowledge it. It's an interesting question I've posed here. Given that they're shutting down these Walgreens and Targets in uh, San Francisco, and uh, it's due to theft, theft is due to the fact that the Democrats are okay with theft. I, I hereby announce I, I risk my reputation as a thinker, as a broadcaster, as a decent human. When I state to you, Theft is okay with the Democratic Party, okay? So let's let's be clear. Clarity is the essence of truth. The Democratic Party in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia is okay with stealing. Is that clear? If it isn't clear, you're lying to yourself, and I can't help that. But I'm not lying to myself. That is how low we have gotten in the, in the moral sphere in this country. One of the two major parties is okay with stealing. Indeed, it makes it possible. Low lives like George Soros fund people who are okay with stealing. That George Soros has the respect of Democrats tells you only one thing, and that is the low level of morality in the Democratic Party. The man is loathsome, truly loathsome. 
He funds people who do not prosecute theft. <laughs> uh, but they laugh. They laugh at us religious folks who actually believe that do not steal comes from God. Oh, how silly dilly. You silly religious people believe that God is against theft. <laughs> Makes us Democrats laugh. You make us laugh, you religious people. We are the sophisticates. Walgreens is closing 22 locations. KPIX Channel 5 re-reached back to Walgreens for clarification, and Walgreens clearly stated the closure of all 22 store locations is directly due to an increase in retail theft. Yes, and if this joker of a mayor ran again, she would probably win. That's right. Part of the reason I've asked the question, why do people in big cities vote Democrat when they, the Democrats ruin their city? Part of it is that it is the, the rich liberal who votes Democrat. They're not affected that's a factor, uh, I believe, uh, in, in in the voting. But what about the people, the poor folks who, who are affected? How do you explain their vote? That's That's the question here.